Hi, this is Peter Lassar, author of Restaurant Strong, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Peter Lassar. Peter has gone from ground zero through IPO in the hospitality business. He spent a decade breaking down the first principles of restaurants, meaning the base layer knowledge of what ha- matters most and what works best in the industry. Peter's an officer and second largest investor, a publicly traded hospitality company. Peter's been president of a $50 million and 1,500 employee hospitality company in Asia and CFO of a publicly traded hospitality company with $200 million in sales in seven countries across the globe. He's the founder of two restaurants that were recognized by the world's best in its discovery series. Peter lives in Tampa, Florida and is here to talk about his book, Restaurant Strong, The First Principles of Restaurant Outperformance. Welcome, Peter. I'm so excited to be here. This is fantastic. I'm so glad to have you with me. Tell me, when you were growing up, Peter, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? That's a great question. When I was in eighth grade, I lived in New Delhi, if you can believe that. I went to the American Embassy School there. And it was right around that time when you can see children no longer being as studious as they were in their earlier years when they wanted to be really obedient. I had this teacher named Mrs. Beck, who was really hard and really tough. She hammered home on this concept of deep work, which now we see people writing books about, okay? Her whole message was, you actually have to spend a lot more time on this than just sitting around in the class and listening to me, and you have to own it. That really stuck with me the rest of my life. Writing this book, Restaurant Strong, was really about the continuation of that lesson of spending many years doing research and doing the deep work. And that really is a game changer for everybody, I think, when they capture that. Mrs. Beck, what did she teach? She taught my history class. She was fantastic. Super hard, super tough. The message never stopped. It just kept coming day after day. And so hard to internalize things. But she understood that and made sure that it stuck. When you were pursuing other hobbies, other interests, and even early career goals, can you remember a time early in your career when that message took hold and you made a decision or had a conversation in a way that was different than if you had never had Mrs. Beck as your teacher? I think that message has been in, in virtually every aspect of my life. And so when we started Thunderbird Resorts, it was really five guys who had taken over this shell company and we took it to five thousand and I don't think I could have played a, a role in that if I had not understood that message. Because to go from five to five thousand is about the deepest work you could possibly do. It's two decades of work. It doesn't happen overnight, of course. Never does. Absolutely. So early in Restaurant Strong, you talk about realizing that there wasn't a place to go to understand right. what are the best practices? What are the principles that restaurants really need to follow? Yet you had lots of restaurants that were on the outside, apparently successful. As you went to talk with them, what were the stories that they gave you? And what was the moment where you had the realization, anecdotes aren't going to get you there? I had a great team and I had people from all over the world working for us in in different levels of management and people were well-trained, smart. They worked in great companies. But when we would sit down to map out 
about our challenges, all the answers that came back were very tactical. And it was hard to actually connect those tactics to many different brands or restaurants like we had. The anecdotes that we would get back from their former jobs, because people had their own experiences, were only applicable in niches. There was no universal connectivity between the ideas that people threw on the table. And that really bothered me. And I started to think there has to be some underlying truths in the restaurant industry. Nobody at this table, even though they were really experienced, smart, savvy people, had ever really thought through them or found them or excavated for them. Well, that was the start of that. Can you remember some of the tactical advice that you got in some of those early meetings or some of your early research where people would bring it back and say, oh, this is what really matters, but it was changing a menu or it was something ridiculously tactical and limited in scope. In the restaurant business and other businesses that I've worked with, what is the, often the fallback is discounting and promotions and cut people deals. But that doesn't really work. That might work if you are in the segment of the industry that is that low cost provider and that is who you are targeting. But as soon as you're trying to add value to people, that sort of discounting doesn't work on a sustainable basis at all. And that was a real problem because too many people were promoting changes to the business or were about reducing price and that was not going to lead us anywhere. Yeah, because what happens is that you may be able to generate more sales that way, but it's not a sustainable path. It's not a sustainable path. And there are commodities, right? Then there are things that have a lot of value. Regardless of what business that you're in, you don't want to be a commodity. You have to understand how to add value. That's a journey that many entrepreneurs in all sectors don't really ever figure out. What is that step ladder to adding value? That's part of what I had to learn. Peter, what are some of the characteristics of the managers of restaurants and owners and small business leaders? What are they going through? What are their circumstances when they realize that they need help and they come to you for your advice, being able to help them look at what first principles are? That's a wonderful question. I keep finding time and again is that people run into roadblocks and they can't actually define the roadblocks in the right ways. Give me a couple specifics. Somebody has a restaurant that serves a particular type of food and they are competing with other restaurants that serve that particular type of food. They can't actually understand why that other restaurant is performing so much better than they're performing. Does that make sense? It could be chicken. It could be American dining. The flavor of food is very subjective, but they can sit down and say, you know what? My product is just as good. It's just as good as those other guys. I can't break through and understand what's happening to hold me down. Then you have to take them through principles rather than tactics and strategies so they have better visibility on the opportunities ahead of them. It's so important for them to have that moment where they understand the distinction between tactics, spices in their food, (laughs) what makes for the flavor, because that's not what leads to a successful business. Can you take us back through a recent example of working with someone and just share with us what are some of the details of what they had when they started working with you and what are some of the key changes they made and what that resulted? I will take you through a restaurant client of mine named Brian, who is in the Midwest and he serves what you would call in the Midwest anyways, sort of a modern take on Midwest. Western food. Okay. What he's trying to do is something really interesting. That is take these old staples of Midwestern food and put a twist on them and make them lighter and make them more interesting. 
What's an example or two of what are his bestsellers? His bestsellers actually have twisting different types of desserts to be almost fantastical when you see them in terms of plating and presentation. That became something that evolved out of of the practice that we went through where they're highly photogenic and they create a lot of visibility. So what happens is that, first of all, we have to do a road mapping exercise. I do road mapping exercises with everybody, but it's not where do you want to go and how much revenue you want to have and all these things that most of us have in our brains because we tend to be focused on those sorts of details. It's really a roadmap to understand what you don't really understand understand yet? Where are the roadblocks in your mind? One of the roadblocks in his mind that is so typical for entrepreneurs everywhere is that when we see what we do, we presume that everybody can see what we're doing. And there's a visibility gap between how much we're really coming through in the marketplace in our minds versus you know how visible we really are in the market. If you had to put that on a scale of one to 10, I would say, most entrepreneurs are just dialing visibility at one and they think they're like eight. And Bill, just you and I sitting here is creating more visibility for me. It's creating more visibility for you as you've done all these incredible podcasts. And think of how long that journey has been for you and how long the journey has been for me. We're still not to where we think we can get to. And most entrepreneurs will launch a product or launch a new service and just expect that the visibility will be there because they did a little bit of advertising. It all started with that Field of Dreams movie where it popularized the idea that if you build it, they will come. That's absolutely right. And and yet, if you try to excavate, which is one thing that I've done, what really happens when you build it and they do come without a lot of marketing, you can get into some interesting uh, conversations with entrepreneurs because there are things that you've done and that I've done and others have done that for some weird reason created really immediate visibility, but that might've been one out of 30 things. Take me back. He had this gap thinking that his twist on these Midwestern dishes were going to really revolutionize it and help him become distinct in the minds of his customers and of his potential market. What are one or two concrete changes he made from your advice and what resulted? To answer that question, I want to talk about this concept that we all know and we all preach as entrepreneurs. We've heard a million times, which is this concept of the road less travel. We hear this over and over and over again. When I went to study the restaurant leaders around the world, the leading independent and chain restaurants looking for what connected all their success, I was able to dig down into how do you actually get on that road less travel? Because it's easy to say, but how the heck does that happen? So what I do with Brian and what I've done with all my clients to actually first help them to develop an idea and a sense of what the patterns are that they are falling into and that all their competitors fall into. In other words, we can't break patterns. We can't get on a road less traveled unless we understand the road that everybody is traveling on, us included, then we can try to do the opposite. So what was happening with Brian is he was putting together some great shakes as we went around and looked at him and all of his competitors. They were all doing great flavors and it was fine presentations and similar marketing language, but there was no nobody that was actually taking that to a huge extreme. So it was almost Fantasia-like in its presentation. We wouldn't have spotted that if we hadn't and spent time looking for the patterns that we all fall into and that he fell into along with his competitors. That's what allowed us to do the opposite. That's what I always tell her. 90% of your work is to find the patterns. 10% of your time is to find the breaks. So in Brian's case, what he was able to do is see that nobody was taking these shakes, for instance, to that next level. 
But what was in his mind, he was holding back from going all the way with the shakes. And you said, go for it. No one else is doing this. You'll be able to really stand out if you not only add the extra whipped cream, the, the cherries and the, the shaved cinnamon right off of a cinnamon stick and stuff like that. But then you got to tell people the story, I bet. So they appreciate that these are the differences they're getting when they order a shake at his restaurant. Yeah, I'm a big believer in, in telling the story. And I don't have a visual of these shakes for us today. If you can imagine a totem pole with all these different things stacked on top of it. What he really creates are these incredible totem pole-like shakes where there's just content rising out of them. And they are so photogenic that they break all the patterns that you see among food photos and make people stop. And they don't really require storytelling, which I'm a big believer in, as are you, because the photos and the presentation break the patterns so powerfully. People look at it and they probably don't even realize, oh my gosh, I'm looking at a shake that a person or a family can order. It's like this visual masterpiece because it looks so different from everything else. I'm sure it's taller. It really is. It's a piece of art. It's taller. It's stacked in weird ways. It's fantastical. What most of us don't realize is that we get really stuck in, in patterns and people can't see us when we're in the patterns. The example I try to give, because this is biological, right? When we were all hunters and gatherers and we were walking in the fields, we would no longer see the, the blades of grass, the fields of grass because there was no danger there. What we would see was a tiger or a lion moving or a lion's roar we would hear because those are the things that alerted us danger or we would see bright red fruits which would alert us to opportunity. So we are biologically constructed to ignore patterns and to spot opportunities and dangers that are contrary to the pattern. For restaurateurs, when we're driving down any street in America, we don't see the strip malls anymore. They are the fields of grass. What we see is when somebody does something that is so crazy that it actually stands apart from the strip malls. And this applies to product presentation. It uh, applies to how we use humor in advertising. It applies to unique stories, to go back to the storytelling uh, point that you were making. It's only when we focus on those pattern breaks, do we really start to rise up in ways that often don't even require a lot of mark at all. Let's talk about a couple other examples of some of the conceptions. One of the big concepts is that people hold themselves back because they're not looking for these opportunities. What are some of the other common areas where people who are leading restaurants and making these decisions are not focusing on because they're focused on things that are not driving the growth of their business and maximizing the opportunities that they have? That's a great question. The restaurant business has a very particular challenge and that if you were in the business of selling software, Bill, or you were in the business of selling copywriting as a service, you would understand very distinctly that people have a need and they're coming to you for a solution to that need. Restaurateurs in particular don't think of themselves as solution providers. And that's really hard for them to understand. I would say this is 95% plus restaurant owners would not describe themselves as solution providers. Pick a well-known restaurant that we can all identify with that does get this. I'll take two on the extremes. If we were to talk about McDonald's or any fast food restaurant, right? There's a physiological human need to fuel up quickly and keep going. That's a very ancient need. So that goes back to the Silk Road coming out of China over well over a thousand years ago where 
Travelers were moving along that road and they had to stop and fuel up before they continued on their travels of often hundreds of miles or even a thousand plus miles. That ancient need is best served by fast food, to some extent by fast casual. That's an obvious one for restaurateurs. But if you go to the other extreme and you talk about the French Laundry, for example, in in California, which most people uh, are aware of, or any super high-end destination fine dining restaurant that will easily cost you $1,000 a person by the time you add your wine bill in, they are also serving needs. They are serving needs to self-actualize oneself, to feel like we're learning something new about the world. So when you go to a museum, you're trying to open up your mind a little bit and you're trying to learn something and feel like you're doing better for yourself as a person. Same thing applies when you go to a hugely expensive restaurant. It's serving a different type of need. Of course, Maslow developed this hierarchy of human needs. That hierarchy has further developed over the years to to really be able to identify all sorts of human needs and to be able to attach your business to a need that you can get better and better at solving. What I love about that approach, Peter, is that you're telling people who are running restaurants and by extension, small business leaders, figure out what need you're meeting. One of the really neat insights that I got from reading Restaurant Strong was that you look not just to meet one need because Maslow's hierarchy of needs starts at the bottom and says there's survival, there's food, shelter, clothing, but then there are also belonging needs. There are also needs for self-actualizing as you move up and satisfy the, the lower level needs. But you say, look at the ability to satisfy a niche by combining needs, a different style of food, a different style of timing, a different style of geography. What is your take on that in order to niche down and serve those needs uniquely and distinctly? That's so powerful. In Restaurant Strong, I've developed, I've taken Maslow's work and I've played with it in in relation to restaurant needs. So if you are in the restaurant business and listening to this, you can see a table of restaurant needs, how you can map your way through them to develop very unique solutions. One might say a buffet of restaurant needs. A buffet of restaurant needs, exactly right. So let's talk about a brand that everybody knows, which is Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A is basically fast food, but Chick-fil-A said, we are gonna practice Christian principles in our management. Guess what? They were providing an esteem need to many Americans, particularly Americans that are not in the big coastal cities, but in the middle America, who believe that Christianity can be pervasive in their whole lives, they're saying, we see you. We recognize you. That is called esteem. That's a particular human need that we all want to feel recognized by the world. That community turned towards Chick-fil-A before anybody else turned towards Chick-fil-A. Now, so Chick-fil-A served the physiological need that I need to fuel up and keep going, They did it with really wonderfully tasting food and they layered on esteem. That gave them an entirely new uh, way of speaking to the world that turned people to them and made them literally the highest revenue generating fast food per store restaurant chain by far. I think everyone listening to this ought to be asking themselves, what are the extra needs that we fulfill through our business, through our solutions, through our products, through the way that we greet customers? How are we showing them that we see them the same way that you mentioned how Chick-fil-A has made it part of their policy, practice, and fundamental principles that everyone is trained in order to treat people with kindness, be respectful, 
respectful, really listen to the customer. And the restaurant doesn't have to provide that much more because the experience of that is what allows people who go into Chick-fil-A to spread the word to others. They now have engaged all of their customers as additional marketers and word of mouth marketers for their restaurant, which is so powerful. Extremely powerful. And the key is for everybody to understand the way to get the best at something is to solve a need better than everybody else. So if your lens is not the need, you actually can't get better than everybody else at doing something because it's the need that puts things in black and white. So what's really interesting is you're saying focus on the need that you have chosen to fulfill, which is still within the choice of the restaurant owner, but it's not the product. It's focusing on the need because that's how you fulfill the need through your product and service and solution of the experience of eating there. Yeah, absolutely. Within the book, you can see the typical lens that an underperforming or ordinary performing restaurant business would have versus a really high performing restaurant business would have. And an ordinary or underperforming restaurant typically will define their tactics first, their food, their service format, and so forth. They will go out and try to address the world and that will immediately put a ceiling on their growth. What are some of the marketing messages you see when people are addressing it just from that perspective? They're looking just at their product. Yeah, they're put, they're trying to convince everybody they have the, the best hamburger, the best sushi, or the best pasta. But all those things are highly subjective. Even when you look at national surveys of Chick-fil-A, which is the biggest chicken sandwich uh, chain in America, there's people across the board that believe in other chicken sandwiches besides Chick-fil-A. It's impossible to be the best at a single product because it's so subjective in terms of flavor but not in terms of need and solution. So when you put in your lens, I am going to change a pattern in the industry and I know what that pattern break I'm doing is, and I'm going to become best over time at serving this need of love and belonging, for example, or esteem or self-actualization, et cetera. You use that architecture to choose tactics and strategies and products that align to that lens, you can become an outperformer. When you don't go that way, you're, you're going to... Share an example of a client you worked with, maybe just the first name, and talk about the struggle that they had. And then when they started to focus on this and they got behind it, what are some of the changes they made and what were some of the results that happened? I have a client in Florida named John and John and his wonderful wife have a beautiful casual dining restaurant that has competed really effectively with a lot of the chain casual dining restaurants, but they stopped growing. They've been in business for almost two decades and they stopped growing. What happened is we had to come up with a lens that helped them to find a way, find ways to innovate to bring new customers customers into your business because we grow through bringing in new customers and turning them into loyal customers. So we were in this political era of you love Trump or you hate Trump or you love the Democrats or you hate the Democrats. It's so divisive. And they're the sorts of people that just didn't want to take anybody's side. They just wanted to serve everybody who came in. And that was really important to them. What we said was, this is actually a place that is about bridging community and about bringing everybody together rather than playing the divides or rather than ignoring the issue entirely, okay? So we are going to have practices that are designed to promote community unity, which is all about love and belonging, belonging to your community, feeling like your community is cohesive and not just be some other restaurant on Main Street. They went and started to organize a series of events with speakers or events to look at parts of American history that celebrated all sorts of aspects of American history 
history that we could all get our, our arms around, tell stories about different types of American history through their... Because one thing where Americans tend to be united is we believe in the values of our Constitution. We believe in the values of our, our forefathers. So we went back and said, let's just look at these original values and let's develop stories and menus around those. And that worked wonderfully well. And now they're opening up their second restaurant because the first restaurant has done uh, so well. It started to grow again. That's a signal of real growth. And they were saying, come here, break bread, and also see your neighbors. Don't put up walls. Let's put down platters of food and join together. You don't have to hold hands and sing Kumbaya, but here we are. We want to share and, and focus on what our commonalities are rather than differences and really know that you're being seen, not just ignored and, and passed a, a plate of food that unites us. We're serving stories and food to bring people together. That can be really powerful stuff. It has within it a need, which is love and belonging. You mentioned that they revised their menu offerings. What are one or two of the ways that they signaled this and shared this through their menu offerings? What we work with were principally around specials and specific events. And we go and say, what was Benjamin Franklin's favorite meal? Benjamin Franklin is a figure which not controversial in our history for the most part. And people of all sides can get around his innovations and his, what he values. So we took some of what he loves and they updated it a little bit and they told the story of Benjamin Franklin around that particular meat. And people go, yeah, it was basically a meat and potatoes and, and green beans style meal, but they would explain how that meal was served back then and they would add their twist today. It wasn't that the food was so outside the norm. The food was delicious, but it was that the story and the content and the way to bring people together made that meal more important and more. Yes, that's so important because those are the combinations of ingredients that produce the successful dish, the successful business. When you don't combine those ingredients, you think you're just serving food, you're missing out on a huge opportunity to really create that distinctive positioning in your customers' minds and also where they choose to frequent and patronize and come back to and be loyal to. Absolutely right. Peter, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best Lightning Round? I am. Bring it on. I'm excited. At the beginning of the interview, you said that Mrs. Beck, you said that Mrs. Beck held a higher standard standard for you and in eighth grade made you really do deep research in history. And that was a lesson that stayed with when you were a teenager, maybe in India. What was your what was one of your favorite songs that you listened to? I was a Hotel California guy my entire life. Loved Hotel California. I can still do most of the verses today. Welcome to Hotel California. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to embarrass myself because of my voice. <laughs> I'll have to practice that one and come back. When you think about your mission to help restaurant leaders understand and apply first principles to be more successful. How do you dedicate time each week? To what activities do you dedicate time each week to make sure you're getting your mission out in the world so that you're helping restauranters learn to become aware of what you offer and to become more successful yourself? What I've really uh, discovered is we can't force people to learn and we're all in different spots. So we can come to somebody and say, we have this great idea and we really want you to learn it. They're just not ready for it for whatever reason. And it's even people who are really open to learning don't necessarily want a, a particular type of learning in any given moment. What I've launched is a restaurant book club, the first restaurant book club in which restaurant professionals and restaurant owners come together and read books with me. And we discuss the principles underlying those books and how they can connect to their business. That is a great tool for developing trust and developing relationships and encouraging openness. What would you say is the best 
life advice you ever received? It was from a former boss of mine and and it, it tied back to Mrs. Beck and it was literally uh, perseverance. It's so true because you have to do the deep work, but then you actually have to keep staying with something until you find your own ways to innovate in that space. That is absolute perseverance. What would you say is the best $100 or so purchase you've made in the last six months? The, la- the best $100. It's always going to be a book. <laughs> I, I have read recently a book called Wanting, which is about mimetic desire. And the author, Luke Burgess, is actually coming into our restaurant book club and is going to be speaking with us. It, it's his take on where desire comes from. There's so many ways you can translate that, how people choose where to work, how people choose to where to consume and spend money and so forth. So really valuable. It was less than $100. It was probably $9.99 or something. Complete this prompt. I know I'm being successful. I know I'm being successful when I have a lot of thinking time, period. Full stop. Because the more time I have to think, the shorter it takes me to find ways to produce results for the people that I serve. How do you make that a priority in your work life each week? Work Fridays and and mornings are, are, are sacred. So I, I don't take uh, client calls in the morning. And I, I basically... I work with clients only in the afternoon so that I can continue my research and my thinking process and my preparation process for clients so that I'm ready for them. When you first start working with a client, how can you tell that there's good leadership within their organization? What are one or two things that you ask about or look for in order to tell that I see that there's a strong uh, leadership element in this business? Yeah, great question. Everybody has needs, including employees, right? It's really hard for most of us to sit back and look independently at every employee and understand that they all have different needs and try to build an organization that can fulfill their needs first because we can't serve our customers unless our employees are really feeling like they've been validated. If you think back over the last year or so, what's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped that's led to the most pleasure or personal satisfaction for you? I never advertise. Is that a new change? change? Before COVID, I I did advertising and and it worked effectively. But uh, what I came to realize, Bill, is that the more time you spend on your expertise, the more your reputation, as long as you're getting the expertise out in the public, which you're helping me to do right now, for example, the more your reputation can build as an asset, snow, a snowballing, and you don't need advertising anymore. So developing that underlying expertise and continuing to snowball it is what will uh, snowball reputation and people will just call you. Terrific. Now, I understand that people do reach out and call you and, and look to engage your services. Many people will become aware of you through Restaurant Strong. As they read the book, what are some of the things that people are saying that they thought they understood, but once they start to work with you, it becomes apparent that they didn't quite understand it fully, or they're not implementing that idea, that technique, or that principle as effectively as they could. One of the first things that you recognize and help them straighten out. People don't really understand that we are all in business in an iteration of something that has become come before us. We all think that just little twists are going to get us to where we want to go. But that's not true. We really need to make wholesale change in order for the world to see us, right? To really, truly see us. And there are only really two ways to do that, that I constantly have to remind my clients. One is see a pattern break and break it entirely to the opposite. Or two, continue to develop your expertise until you have iterated 
so many little iterations that you've stacked up something that becomes truly novel in the world. Until you get to that thing that is truly novel, your job really hasn't even started in terms of your ability to impact uh, people in a major way. Peter, you've had an impact on everyone listening to this interview. You've shared so many great things in this episode, starting with the early impression that Mrs. Beck made with the deep work and deep thinking that was required to be successful. You talked about all of the principles that made for first principles and how important it was at the very beginning when you started your company with Thunderbird Partners and being able to understand that you have to see where the data leads and you have to see not what makes the product the best, but how you're going to combine the product and what needs you're looking to fulfill out in the marketplace with the customers and patrons that you serve is what's going to make the biggest difference. We talked about how people will not see the fields of grass. They'll overlook the patterns that they've become accustomed to and how important it is to have outside perspective in order to recognize those patterns to help break them. We talked about examples and being able to look at different examples of people that you've worked with and help them become more successful with their family business. John, such as Brian and then John, who was working in his business and hadn't been able to make a breakthrough. He'd gotten stagnant until you started looking at these first principles and applying them. The important reminder that you gave us that we all start businesses and we, to our own folly, will ignore or overlook what came before. It's important to look at that to be able to accelerate our learning and take us um, toward the vision of what we want our businesses to be. So for all these reasons, Peter, I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Bill, it's been fantastic. Such an honor to be here. And please continue the fantastic work that you're, you're doing on behalf of business people literally. Ever. Thank you so much, Peter. People listening to this are going to say, how can I find out more about you and the work that you're doing? What is the website that you want people to go to? People can go to www.peterlesar.com and they can start learning about what I do and what I offer there. Peter, when they finish this episode, they could go to the show notes where we'll link to peterlassar.com. We'll also link to your social media as well as places to buy your book, Restaurant Strong. Peter Lassar, author of Restaurant Strong, the first principles of restaurant outperformance and how to make them work for you. Thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Bill, thank you so much. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.